Good morning. There we go. All right. Good morning. Your copy of God's Word, please flip over to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 5 this morning for our scripture reading down through verse 36. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what would be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. And then he continued uh, by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you over to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. And I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish, but your endurance will gain you your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies during those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captive into the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth dismay among nations and on the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and from expectation of things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then he told them this parable. Behold, the fig tree and all of the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and you know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with the dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell upon the face of the earth. But keep on alert at all times, praying that you may may have the strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So this morning, a, uh, a topic which usually cultivates great interest, the end of it all, how all of it comes to its final end. 
Jesus here is answering a couple of questions. If you were to look at this story in some of the other Gospels, you would see that there they also include the question, and what is the sign of your coming? Luke, for whatever reason, does not include that question here. He only includes the two questions about the destruction of the temple. But Jesus gives an answer in this text about his second coming as well. So this this question is not left unanswered. And so the first thing that we see in verses 5 and 6 is a prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to happen. We know that historically this did take place. It took place in 70 AD. And the temple of old was a marvel to look upon. Um, It would have been uh, um, outlaid with gold in many places. Um, In fact, when the Romans destroyed the temple, the reason that they tore it down brick from brick and, and, and set it on fire was to melt the gold so that they could get the gold off of all of the stones that were on the outside of the temple. Um, That's one of the reasons why its destruction was so total, is that they wanted the value of what was on the actual building to be able to come off, and they couldn't do that by leaving the stones on top of each other. And so Jesus makes an announcement to them. He says, there's a day coming. You see this magnificent building. You see this incredible space that's been made, this place where worship has taken place, this place where the sacrifices have been made this place that was rebuilt after its initial destruction and made to be glorious not nearly apparently as glorious as the day solomon built it but glorious nonetheless and said the whole thing is going to be torn down nothing will be left of this i've had the privilege of being in israel and being at the temple site and there's nothing left except foundation stones in the ground that's it there's a few pieces of outer wall. We call one section the Wailing Wall where people go and insert prayers and they weep over the temple having been destroyed. They wail there if they are Orthodox Jews because for near 2,000 years they've not been able to have a Day of Atonement. And if you take very seriously the mandate of the Old Covenant, your sins are not forgiven before God if the proper annual sacrifice is not made. And those who take this very seriously know that for at least two millennia, they have not had their proper offering made to God to have their sins forgiven. This is a very substantial thing that Jesus is saying to a Jewish audience in the first century. This central hub of worship for you, this place where you claim to meet God, this place where your high priest goes once a year and interacts face to face with the wrath of God over the atoning sacrifice, this place will be no more. Whole thing's coming down. And so they ask a question about the future. If you were to have heard something like that, something as valuable and as meaningful to you, and it were to be announced to you by someone who had demonstrated themselves to actually legitimately be a prophet, Jesus was more than a prophet, but he certainly was a prophet. And if you'd seen the signs and wonders that Jesus had performed, and you'd seen the fulfillment take place that he had announced, and someone were to have told you that something so meaningful and so central to your life was about to be in complete ruin and no longer exist, what would your question be? I think it would be similar to the question these men asked. When's this going to happen? How are we supposed to know when this is happening? What's going to be the signs of this massive cataclysmic event taking place? 
And so they ask a question about the future in verses 7 through 9. When is this going to happen? What signs do we look for? And so Jesus addresses the explicit question with underlying concern. The explicit question that they ask is about the destruction of this temple and the ruin of Jerusalem. They, they specifically want to know about that. You were just talking about this temple and you said the whole thing's going to be torn down and none of it's going to be standing on top of itself anymore. And so when's that going to take place? But the disciples understood, even though Luke omits it, they ask it in the other Gospels. The, the disciples understood that this is a declaration of the end of the age. They can't envision a world where the kingdom of God can continue to exist where the temple is not there. So they equate in their minds, well, if the temple is going to be destroyed, this must be the ushering in of the end of all things. So there's an underlying question that they're asking. When is the end going to come? And what is that going to look like? That's the other question that Jesus is answering for them and about to answer for them. And Jesus, before he begins answering the question, gives a warning. And his warning to his hearers, and it's the same warning that he has for us today, particularly around this topic of the second coming, is do not be deceived. The eschaton, the doctrine of last things, an understanding of how all things are going to reach their end, is an easy topic to be deceived about. And people have been deceived about it in various ways since the beginning of Christianity 2,000 years ago. Paul writes to an entire group of Christians in that first generation of believers after the ascension of Jesus at the church at Thessalonica, explaining to them across two separate letters how they are improperly responding to their misunderstanding about the end of all things. It happened that quickly. That's how quickly misunderstanding about eschaton can come in. You say, well, Philip, doesn't it, does it really matter that much? I mean, can't we all just be pan-millennialists? It's all going to pan out in the end. I mean, do we really have to get a lot of the details right about this? I mean, we can take that attitude, I suppose. The problem is, is that most scholars who've studied the scriptures deeply and seriously have come to the conclusion that not less than one-fourth of the entire Bible deals in some way with the end of all things. And so for us to take the attitude and the perspective, ah, isn't it all just going to flesh itself out anyway, is essentially for us to thumb our noses at one quarter of the revealed word of God. So ah, I'm just going to worry about trying to figure that out. And I'll just work itself out. That is not the perspective the believer should have about such an amount of real estate given to us in the scripture that God saw fit to make known about his kingdom and his plan. And so that's not really an okay perspective. And so Jesus gives a book before he answers their question. He warns them, do not be deceived. Don't be misled. See to it, verse eight, that you are not misled, that you are not deceived. Why? What's going to happen? For many will come in my name and they'll say, I am he. By the way, in your English translations where it says, I am he that he has supplied, 
It's actually the same divine prerogative name that Jesus used when he often talked about himself. It's just I am in the original text. Which I think is a bit weightier. I wish they'd have translated it that way. The time is near, they will say. Do not go after them. I love this classic quote attributed to Martin Luther, the great reformer. He said, someone asked him one day, Luther, what if someone were to come to you today and say that the Lord Jesus Christ was coming back this very day? What would you do? He said, I would plant a tree. They say the time is near. Don't believe them. Don't go after these false teachers. Don't go after these deceivers. Don't go after these those who are, are stirring things up. Friends, even the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity made the declaration that no one knows the day or hour but the Father. For people to write books and articles and to give seminars on their calculated date of the coming of the Lord is an absolute waste of time. And a clear demonstration that likely that person is one of these false teachers that you have been warned about. Don't go after them. Don't be deceived by them. He also said, don't be misled by the apparent signs of the times. Verse 9, when you hear of wars and of disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But that does not mean that the end follows immediately. Oh, look, there's a great military leader who's rising up over in some foreign place and he's very cavalier and charismatic. He must be the Antichrist. This is going to be the end. If you want to go back and trace through the history of times that people have pointed to great charismatic tyrannical leaders as the Antichrist, you'll see how often the prophecy has been false and not true. Why? Because there's going to be wars and there's going to be disturbances and there's going to be terrors. These things are to be expected. Why? Because we live in a fallen and broken, ruinous world. And the hearts of people are dark. Darkest of all when they do not have Jesus Christ, but even still somewhat dark with the presence of the Lord in our lives. Because the weight of sin in this fallen age is heavy and attractive, and it pulls us in, and it infects us like cancer. We've seen great examples of this the last four days in our own country. Humanity is not getting better. It's getting worse. And it has been getting worse for quite a long period of time. In fact, one of the punishments given after the flood was that man's life would be shortened. Why? Because his heart is bent toward evil continually. I had a conversation about this the other day with some people and I said, could you imagine if we take seriously the length of lives listed for people prior to the flood, living seven, eight, nine hundred years? Could you imagine a world in which Hitler lived to be 800 years old? Paul Pot or Stalin or Mussolini. Could you envision the regimes of genocide in Africa and Asia that currently exist in our world now, living to be seven, eight, nine hundred years old before their lives fade out? The level of darkness would be unparalleled. Friends, this is the condition of our world. 
We live in a world that needs to be saved. We don't live in a world of perpetual social improvement. We don't live in a world where it's constantly getting better. Apologies to all and any of my post-millennial friends in the room or listening, but the world is not drastically and massively improving in its moral standing. It's just not. It's just not. The gospel has made the world a better place and humanity in its darkness has taken all of those things that Christianity has made better about the world and twisted it for their own evil purposes. It's remarkable. And so Jesus warns those listening and he warns us today. When you begin to approach this issue, this issue of the end of all things, you must not be deceived by false teachers. You must not be misled by the apparent signs of the times. Why? Because the end does not follow immediately. There's a delay. And we don't know how long that delay will be. So far, it's been roughly 2,000 years since this statement was made. That's quite a delay from the human perspective. From the biblical theological perspective, that's two days from God's perspective. For a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day, Peter teaches us about the Lord. So for God, it's been two days, not a very long period of time. For us, it seems much longer than that. And so what does Jesus do here to answer both of those questions? He takes the destruction of the temple as a prototype for the second coming. He says there's this cataclysmic event that's going to happen. Jesus begins blending the immediate circumstances of the destruction of the temple with the future circumstances of the second coming. So let's talk briefly. We won't walk through the fullness of the history. There are plenty of resources that you can go to to read about and to think about the horrors that took place in and around Jerusalem during the Roman siege around the time of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. It is horrific. If you've read the story, it's horrific. They cut off a food supply into the city. The disease that began spreading because they didn't have access to clean water. The cannibalism that began taking place because people were so hungry. It was unparalleled what happened in that place. And then the Romans finally came in after they let them suffer for an extended period of time and destroyed everything, including the temple that no longer stands to this day. The cistern that was used to allow blood to leave the temple area during the perpetual sacrifices that were given in the temple area. When they began to melt down the temple and cause it to burn because they were trying to melt the gold, it says that the gold began to run down and flow out of that same cistern where the blood used to flow so they could have access to the wealth and resources of the temple. I I can't begin to imagine. And friends, let's just pause for a moment and remember, this is pre-modern warfare technology. This is being done by instruments not driven by gas, nuclear, electric, biochemical. This is stuff done by hand. They tore down one of the great wonders of the world by hand. I can't imagine the carnage. 
And so Jesus takes the events preceding and surrounding the destruction of the temple as a prototype for the second coming. What's going to be happening? Well, what was happening at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? Nation was standing up against nation. Because of the influx of Christianity, because of a shift in regime powers in Rome, we now have the Roman uh, uh, government, the, the Roman tyranny, no longer finding uh, Judaism and or its offshoot. They viewed them essentially as the same thing, Christianity, as uh, palatable and acceptable in the Roman Empire any longer. And they began to press down against the Jewish people and by extension those who were Christians in the faith. And this nation rose up against the nation of Israel. And during that time, a number of natural disasters occurred. And because of the war that had broken out, a number of illnesses began to take place. Persecution of variant religious perspectives, particularly the Christian religious perspective, began to break out in Rome at this time. All of these things took place at the destruction of the temple. And Jesus teaches very plainly and very simply that the lead up to the second coming will include all of these same things. Why? Because the destruction of Jerusalem is not just a prototype for the second coming. It's also a prototype for life for the believer who's dwelling in the city of man, but longing to be in the city of God. Nation will still rise up against nation. Wars will still be fought. Famines and illness will still take place. Natural disaster will still claim the lives of many. And persecution against the powers that be, against that which is true, will continue to take place. But I want to break, Philip. You get one in glory. It's an old quote from an old movie a long time ago. I'll get all the sleep that I need when I'm dead. You get all the rest that you need when you enter glory. So what is Jesus's immediate warning to these people? His immediate warning to the people in this context at this time. After he tells them that you're going to be hated by everyone. Everyone's going to hate you for my name's sake. Friends, that wasn't just true for them. That was true for us as well. And then in verse 20, what is his warning? It says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded, when it's about to be besieged by armies, know that her desolation is near. And then the next several verses, he encourages them to flee, to get out, to run away. I know that in our American bravado, That goes against our patriotic sensibilities to run from an invading army. Difficult for some of us to process what Jesus is saying here. But Jesus knew this is an unwinnable war. Rome at this time, just do a little research. Rome at this time, when they made the decision to overthrow an enemy, they overthrew their enemy. There was nothing. Nothing that could be done to stop it. Rome is on the list. It's probably one of the five greatest war-making empires that has ever existed on earth. I can only imagine what they would have been capable of if they'd had our modern technologies. 
They took over a third of the known world and held it captive to their legal and philosophical system for hundreds of years with weapons of war made by hand. No guns, no bombs, no planes, no biochemical warfare, no radar and sonar and satellite technology, none of the things that we take advantage of in modern warfare. No. Spies and scouts and platoons in armor and shields with swords and spears and arrows. Occasional catapult and a battering ram every once in a while. And they were able to dominate and subdue a third of the known world for hundreds of years. It's incredible. And so Jesus tells these people, he says, listen, when you see the armies coming to besiege Jerusalem, know that her desolation is is over. Get out and get out quickly. One of the greatest advantages that the Christians had is that the persecution broke out first and they were forced to flee Jerusalem to the outlying areas because of the persecution that happened in Jerusalem. The persecution saved their lives. So often we look at suffering and pain and sorrow and we long to find a way to make sure that it can go away because we don't want to hurt presently, not recognizing that in God's sovereign plan, often the suffering that we're facing in the immediate term is for our long-term well-being and benefit. Had they not suffered some early, they would have suffered completely at their death later. Their short-term suffering of relocation because of persecution caused their lives to be extended and the gospel to go further in the Roman kingdom. And Jesus explaining this to them, and of course by the time people would have read Luke's gospel, it would have been after the destruction of Jerusalem, and so they would have known about the events that took place. And when they heard this and they saw this, they would have said, wow. Because they would have been able to supply the intimate details of what happened. Because they would have either experienced it firsthand or heard about it firsthand. They would have been alive still while the event had taken place. And the terror and the destruction of uh, the terror of the destruction of Jerusalem is a small sampling of the cosmic undertaking that will be the second coming of Jesus. For many of us. Second coming, as we prayed earlier this morning, is viewed as a glorious and happy event. And for the believer, it should be. It is the finalization, full culmination of our total redemption, our resurrection, our complete conformity to the image of Jesus. Oh, happy day that that will be. But what of those who are not in the faith? Jesus in verse 25 through 33 begins talking about his second coming. He makes a transition from the more earthly reality of the destruction of Jerusalem and some of the parallels that he's been making there. And he just goes into full announcement of his coming. He shifts from earthly signs to heavenly ones. And he makes a declaration that people will see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. Friends, This is not an announcement 
of the salvation of his people in these first three verses. This is an announcement of judgment against all those who oppose Christ and his gospel in these first three verses. These men are terrified. They're perplexed. They see mysterious signs from heaven. They live in fear. They're, uh, uh, they're unsteady because the very powers of heaven themselves have been, sh- been shaken. They do not know how to respond to the world that they now are living in. And then they see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. Friends, when you filter through the Old Testament, And it uses the language of God coming in great glory or glory. When it uses the language of God coming in power or displaying his power, not in every case, but in the majority of cases when this language is used of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's used as judgment, severe judgment against his enemies. What does it say repeatedly in the Exodus? With a mighty hand. And an outstretched arm, it says. Great power and glory is the concept. You see this theme repeated throughout the Old Testament. God raises His hand of judgment up against those who have stood against His covenant. These people will be terrified for it is a day of reckoning. But you, my dear friend, he makes a transition in verse 28. You, my dear friend, who, have, who is in Christ and who has repented of your sins and believed on the Lord, who is part of the covenant community, you should be encouraged. It says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift your heads before your, for your redemption is drawing near. Just a side note. Christians are and will be present at this moment per Jesus Christ. Please do not adhere to a theological system of the end that causes all believers to not be here when this happens. It does not reflect the plain words of the Scripture. Friends, it's very much like the telling of the Exodus story. The nation of Israel was still there when the plagues came on Egypt. Why were they unaffected? Because the grace of God kept them from being affected. But they had to deal with the residual side effects and consequences of the rest of the broken, fallen world being affected. Rather than it transforming God's enemies to rejoice and to worship God and be converted, it caused them to hate His people all the more and to put more suffering on them. But they themselves were protected from the wrath of God because God cared for them and loved them and gave them grace. And Jesus, teaching them about this, tells them a parable to try and orient their minds toward what this is really like. And he gives them the parable of the trees and their leaves. He mentions the fig tree, but then he includes all of the trees. He says, behold, the fig tree and all of the trees, as soon as they put forth their leaves... You see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. He said you can make an observation of how things are going to begin to get an awareness of the nearness of events. He says so also when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Now, as an aside, what is he talking about here? 
Remember, he's been answering two very different questions. The destruction of the temple and the second coming. He's been blending these things together for almost 20-something verses. So in this case, when he's kind of wrapping it up and he says, okay, now listen, I'm going to tell you the story about some trees. When you see the leaves start to form up on it, you know things are about to go down. Is he talking about the Romans coming and they're needing to flee? Or is he talking about his coming and they're needing to be prepared? The answer, I think, that best sums up all of the scholarly work that I've seen on this is, eh. That's verbatim from uh, several books. Um, Yes, maybe would be the answer. He's certainly warning them about what's about to immediately happen to them in Jerusalem. But he's also about to tell them that they need to be on the ready for his coming. And how can you be on the ready if you're not observing the things that are going on around you? So this is probably a both and rather than an either or. And so Jesus says something incredible after this. He says, truly, I say to you, verse 32, and this this has created so much incredible debate and remarkable conspiracy theories that it's just impossible to process all of it. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Well, obviously, Jesus' second coming, as we understand it, has not taken place. And also equally obvious, everyone from that generation is dead. So what is Jesus talking about? See answer from before about modern scholarship. People are very uncertain as to what Jesus is getting at here. Is he talking about this generation won't pass away until the fulfillment of these events that occurred in 70 A.D. takes place? Perhaps problem is, is that essentially all of the apostles except John were dead before then. Even Paul, who's one of the later lived apostles, who doesn't become an apostle even at this time, he was converted much later, is dead by the early to mid 60s. Jerusalem's not destroyed until 70 A.D. If we understand our history to have any meaning at all, John the Apostle is the only one alive when this event takes place. Now, you could say, well, then he's representative of that generation and, you know, at least one of them was around. Some people go so far as to say, well, the second coming has already happened and this is just how the rest of the world is. That's our full preterist friends. Don't believe them. Very wrong about this. The second coming was the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. That generation saw it, and now it's just the world as it is until it phases out and burns up billions of years from now. No, that doesn't work either. The word some people take 
generation because it can be translated a different way. It can mean race. And he can be talking about the race of people, namely the Jewish people. And he can be saying this people will not pass away until all things take place. And there are those who have an eschatological theological system that say there's a special place for this particular race of people. And this particular race of people will have an abiding endurance until the end comes. And there's an entire theological system built in around this concept. The great problem with that is that once Jesus ascends into heaven and you begin having a perpetuation of the gospel in the world, almost every teaching of what Jesus has done in the gospel is a teaching that there is now one new man, that there are only two races of people. And those two races are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And God is not a respecter of persons. And he's torn down the dividing wall. And he's welcomed those who are far off in. And he's blended them together and grafted them to become one new tree bearing one kind of fruit. Every indication of what Christ has done on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that he's tearing down global distinctions and that we are actually one group of people from every nation, people, tribe, and tongue represented as one family in Christ with God as our father, Christ as our brother, the spirit filling us all. And we would also this past week have been reminded of that very well as a Christian church. And so that doesn't seem to work. So what does Jesus mean by this? What does he mean by this? That that this generation won't pass away, this race won't pass away. I, I think that there's a spiritual theme happening here. Jesus is forming a new race of mankind in the gospel. He is forming those who now truly have God as their father. This is what Paul teaches us in Ephesians and in Colossians and in Romans and in other places. Peter teaches it as well, even in his letters. That he's making for us to become this priesthood. This people of his own possession. And friends, we get a glimpse of this. We get a glimpse of this earlier in the teaching in verses 18 and verses 19, that there will be endurance. The people of God, the Christian church, will not be extinguished from the earth until all things reach their conclusion. For Christ is already victorious and he has stamped his victory on his people. And while it may appear that we lose ground through our suffering, that we lose ground through our martyrdom, that we lose ground through our persecution, the words of Tertullian should ring in our ears from thousands of years ago that the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the gospel and that the more we die, the more yet he lives. Christianity only expands and increases the hotter the fire is on God's people. And this generation, this race of people, this one new man will not pass away until all things have reached their end. And Jesus shows us, I think, that this is a spiritual reality with the very next verse that he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And what has, what has been his words? What has he declared to those who would come into covenant with him? Those who would repent, those who would believe, those who would embrace the gospel, those who would come under the, his impending crucifixion that's about to take place. Who, 
What has he said to them? He has said to them that he's bread from heaven. He said to them that he is living water. He has said to them that they have a new life. That they are participants in a first resurrection with a promise of being participants in the future resurrection. A resurrection from their dead state in sin and a future resurrection physically into glory, being made fully into the image of God as they should. There's a promise that he's made that he will overthrow his enemies. There's a promise that he made that he will over undo what has been done in the fall of the first great man. These are his promises. And friends, this morning, I encourage you, they will stand firm. Regardless of what you're going through in your life right now, regardless of the circumstances that you're facing, regardless of the pain and the sorrow that you may be dealing with, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ stand true and firm forever. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until when? The day of Christ Jesus, this very day that we're talking about in this text today. And so what does Jesus conclude then in this eschatological teaching about the future? He doesn't give us a lot of details about the when and the how and the what. And that's on purpose. I think we as humans would all do well to cease speculating about things that the Scripture is silent on when it comes to this. For our speculations and our imaginations are usually quite wrong. What does Jesus teach us plainly here about the end of all things? In verses 34 through 36, he teaches us on the idea of being ready. Friends, we need to be ready. Remember, if you were able to be with us online or in person, last week's message on consumer versus servant religion. The reason it was placed there in our text is because Jesus says this next. You need to be ready. There is a day of reckoning coming and consumer religion is not the entryway into the kingdom of God. The falsified religion of the Pharisee longing to have all eyes on them, proud of their position, proud of their education, proud of their perspective, proud of their social standing, proud of their agreement and alignment with those who are false in the community, proud of the way that they abuse people falsely through fake spiritual realities and through self-justification. This version of religion is not it. They are not ready. You need to be ready, Jesus said. A lot of times I read guys and they go, man, this this Luke fella, he just really didn't know how to write. He's got all these disjointed stories that seem totally out of place. This thing about these guys, who, you know, wearing these robes and these and then a random story about a widow and then a thing about a temple and then about some apocalyptic event that is coming. This is the most disjointed thing I've ever seen. It's not disjointed at all. Jesus is demonstrating through the words of Luke and Luke's story about him a build up. So that we might be warned of how things ought to be. And so he says you need to be ready. Be on your guard. Verse 34 says. Be on your guard. Friends, this is warfare language. This is fighting language. 
For those of you whose sensibilities do not allow for fleeing from Jerusalem because you're just ready to take up arms and go to war and fight the great fight and die a great patriot's death, Jesus gives you an opportunity to fight here. He gives you a great enemy to battle against here. If you want to grab a hold of the bravado and the bravery, he says, be on your guard, be ready to fight. All right, well, who do we need to fight against? He tells us right here. So that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and that that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Who do I need to wage war with? What enemy do I need to fight against? Is it against the tyrannical government that might be oppressing me? Is it against some fascist far away that might be coming against me? Is it against some false teacher who might be trying to press in on my territory? Is it against some cosmic power like Satan who may be coming quietly whispering in my ear, oh no, dear friend, the enemy is much closer and much more well-known than that. The enemy is me, my own dark, wayward heart. Be on guard so that your heart is not weighted down with dissipation and with drunkenness and with the worries of this life. And this great day of the Lord Jesus comes on you suddenly like a trap. Why? Because you were worried about everyone and everything else like the consumer religion of the Pharisees and you never turned the spotlight of the gospel in on your own life and recognize that you needed to be broken by the gospel. Let's go back to three weeks. There's a great rock of stumbling and offense and you'll either fall down on it and be broken in salvation or it will fall down on you and break you in judgment. And if all I'm doing is paying attention to all of the enemies out there, I miss the greatest enemy of all, the one who resides in me. And Jesus says, you need to be on guard. If you want to be ready for that great day, you need to be on guard against what, Jesus? What do I need to be on guard against? Your own dark heart, because it will lead you away from me just like that. It will chase after every idol it creates. It will supply for you every great distraction that it can find. And it will cause you to find your hope in anything but the truth of the gospel. Be on guard. And then he says, keep alert. Keep alert at all times. Praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to be able to stand before the Son of Man. What is he telling this crowd to keep alert about? It's a little different than being on guard. It's more of an awareness rather than an actual interaction. He's giving them two reasons to be on alert. First, for the imminent and impending fall of Jerusalem. He's actually giving them in real time and space a warning. He said, pray that you'll have the strength to escape these things that are about to happen. He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's talking about the need for them to have to be dispersed. And Peter begins writing in some of his letters about the early dispersion and the persecution that's breaking out. He's writing to my brothers who have been dispersed and are in the far regions. That's what he's talking about. That early persecution saved so many of their lives because they left Jerusalem before these events took place. And so Jesus, in his compassion for their lives, is warning them. Warning them 
Stay on alert. Stay on alert. Be sensible. Pray for strength. Do the wise and prudent thing. It's very much like a mother's warning to her son. My mother warned me often. I often ignored. But she'd say, Philip, you can go to that place you're wanting to go to. At that late and ungodly hour of the night that you're wanting to go there. It's your right to do so. You're free to act in that way. But it's probably really bad idea. Just because you can do something. Oh, hold on. Somebody's going to finish it. Doesn't mean you should do something. Y'all, so you, you're, you're, my mom called y'all too, huh? Okay. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, listen, something really, really bad's about to happen. And if you want to come out on the other side of it, you need to leave. Be on alert. So he's warning them about the imminent reality of the destruction of Jerusalem. But then he tags in a second thing that's for all of us. I don't have to be worried about the imminent destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It happened a long time ago. It's not a real imminent threat any longer. But notice what he does. He tags in on the back end. He says, keep alert, praying to have strength, to stand for the events that are about to take place and to do what? To stand before the Son of Man. Friends, that's for everybody. That's not just for the crowd in the first century whose city is about to be torn down around them. Which is a microcosm prototype of the much grander, large-scale, cataclysmic, cosmic event that's going to take place in the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's looking at these men and then by way then looking to us in this generation saying, you need to keep alert so that you can stand before the Son of Man. Well, Philip, what would keep me from standing before the Son of Man? Having deceived myself and believing that I am in the faith when I am not because my dark heart has lied to me. As we close, consider the ominous words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not heal many sick? Do we not cast out many demons in your name? And I will say to them on that day, what day? This day, the day he's talking about right here. This is the day he's talking about. And I will say to them on that day. He's talking about that day right here. Say, Philip, why are you going to that verse? Because he's talking about this day we've been talking about all morning. I will say to them on that day. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. I never knew you. Well, they had all the appearances of being in the faith. They had all the signs of being true, diehard believers. They were preaching and teaching the truth and they were 
doing great wonders and they were helping people in society and they were battling against the powers of darkness. I mean, surely if anybody was in, it was these guys. Look at all the stuff that they were doing. Look at them, how great they were. Sounds a great deal like the consumer religion that Jesus just warned us off of in the Pharisees' lives. Friends, the true mark of a great Christian is not in how much doctrine they know and understand and how well they can articulate it, though that's a valuable spiritual gift. It's not in their outward acts of compassion and mercy, though these are called for to flow from the lives of believers. It's not in their supposed display of outward holiness and superior righteousness to those around them, though Christ does call us to be holy as his Father in heaven is holy. No friend, hear me this morning. The great display of someone who is greatly in Christ is marked by two things and two things only. It is a perpetual person acknowledging their need for Jesus through personal repentance of their own sin. And a constant clinging to a need for more faith than they have now. Faith and repentance is the centrality from the human perspective of the gospel. It does not mark your entrance into the kingdom. It marks your life in the kingdom. The greatness of the Christian is displayed not in their great outward actions. The greatness of their Christian is displayed by the greatness of their Savior doing an inward action in them that we often do not see. This is the difference between having a heart that is guarded and ready and having one that's superficial and outward. A display of religion but lacking the godliness and power thereof that Paul warns about in his New Testament letters. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Friends, Jesus asks us this morning to be on our guard, to be alert, to be ready. Friends, you don't have to look any further than the mirror. I don't have to look any further than the mirror to see who and what I need to be on guard against. If all of the evil and all of the strife and all of the hardship and all of the pain in the world were to stop, except that which is produced by me and in me, it would still be far too much in this world. I must, as a dying man, preach to dying men the glory of Jesus Christ. And I must preach that gospel first to myself every day before I dare utter a word of it to anyone else. Be on your guard. That's the lesson of the eschaton. That is the lesson of the end of all things. 
Not what day, not what time, not what events, not what's it going to look like, not how does it line up with what's going on in my newspaper. What is happening in my heart today that needs to be transformed by the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ in His Gospel? I must be ready in that and I must do it every day. Be on your guard. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for such a severe and stern warning from the Lord Jesus Christ about how we are truly prepared for the future event of the coming of the Lord. The reconciliation of all things, the final judgment, the final state of glory. Father, show us our need to be on guard against the darkness in our own hearts. Forgive us, Father, when we participate in consumer religion. When we participate in a works-based outward religion. Father, start with me. Show me the waywardness of my faith, the smallness of my faith, the, the lack and neediness of my repentance. Show me my pride. Show me my avarice. Show me my unbelief. And Father, by your grace and for your glory, Lovingly, mercifully, compassionately, chisel out, burn out, crush out, pull out all that is in me that is not of Christ Jesus. And then do it again tomorrow. And the next day. And every day. Until the day of my death or the day of Christ's glory, whichever comes first. Father, cause me and everyone who is here listening today to be on guard. And we thank you in advance for this grace you will show us. In Jesus' name, amen.